Welcome, First Friends Church family. We are so glad to have you tuning in because here at First Friends Church, we live to glorify God together by loving Him, making disciples, and proclaiming the gospel. One of the best ways to strengthen our faith is by diving into the Word of God together during our Sunday gatherings. So if you don't have a church family, we would love to have you join us. All there is to know as you plan your visit can be found at firstfriends.org. Now let's go to our lead pastor, Nathaniel, with this week's message. The soundtrack of my childhood was the Gaithers. I don't know if many of you of a certain maturity level uh, know the, the, the Gaithers, and originally it was the Bill Gaither Trio, and I remember one specific recording that my dad had. Um, it was a live uh, concert, and so the music was interspersed with stories that different members of the, the Bill Gaither Trio told, and I remember Gloria telling this one story about a family reunion that they had been at, and uh, it was a, a lot of people and a lot of kids, a lot of uh, adults as well, and there was one scene that she described where near the end of the afternoon, it was late afternoon, there was a young child who was just absolutely exhausted, had probably missed a nap, was maybe four or five years old, and was playing uh, baseball, I think it was probably wiffle ball, with their grandma. And the grandma was, you know, tossing the, the ball, and the kid was trying to hit it. And finally, after one egregious miss, the kid threw the bat on the ground, and he yells, you missed again, Grandma. You missed my bat again. <laughs> self-focus and self-pity. It's never pretty, even in children. It's ugly in others, right? We recognize it and we hate it, but it's just as ugly in ourselves, even though we may not see it or recognize it as quickly. As adults, we're often able to disguise it, not advertise it so obviously, but all of us are prone to it because we are born into, we're actually conceived into a self-worship and a self-focus. Today, we will watch as Jonah wallows in self-pity and self-focus, and it will not be pretty. But his childish bitterness is only going to highlight the sovereignty and mercy of God. And God, his character, is worth celebrating. And as we'll discover, you can't block God through self-focus or self-pity. If you don't have a hard copy Bible and you'd like to borrow one this morning so you can follow along, the ushers are coming back down the aisles now. I know it's a little bit dark out there, but hopefully you'll still be able to make out the print. Um, if, if you just raise your hand, they'll be glad to give you one. And if you do not own a copy, please take this as uh, a gift from us. Keep it, read it, make it your own. If you don't know where the, the account of Jonah is in the Bible, uh, it's hard to find. It's short, so I would strongly recommend just going to the table of contents and looking for it there. I'll be reading Jonah chapter 4. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong. 
and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord, isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? That is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it's better for me to die than to live. But the Lord replied, is it right for you to be angry? Jonah had gone out and sat down at a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade, and waited to see what would happen to the city. Then the Lord God provided a leafy plant, made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head to ease his discomfort, and Jonah was very happy about the plant. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm, which chewed the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind, and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said, it would be better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? It is, he said, and I'm so angry, I wish I were dead. But the Lord said, you've been concerned about this plant, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and also many animals? Chapter 1 and chapter 3, um, I divided into scenes. So just for the sake of variety, this chapter I'm dividing into acts, okay? Three acts. The first act, Jonah speaks. The final chapter begins with the description, right, of Jonah's rage against God. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong and he became angry. This seemed very wrong. What is the this that makes Jonah so angry? What is the this that is so wrong in his sight? We look back to the previous verse, the last verse of chapter 3. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. Jonah is incensed over God's mercy. The fact that God did not destroy Nineveh, that's the source of his anger, that is what seems very wrong to Jonah. And Jonah speaks. Now remember, until now, it's been the word of the Lord speaking. The word of the Lord coming to Jonah. But now, Jonah is absolutely fed up, and he is going to speak. And it's important for us to know how he expresses this. In Hebrew, what's literally written is this. Was this not my word while I was still in my own land? 
Do you hear that contrast? It's been the word of the Lord came to Jonah. The word of the Lord, the word of the Lord. And now Jonah says, this is my word. That's fine, Lord, what your word is. But now you are going to listen to my word. Was this not my word when I was still in my own land? And although we've already had hints, maybe, of Jonah's previous motivation, now for the first time, he is going to state it clearly and starkly. He's going to explain why he ran from God in the first place. He did not go to Nineveh initially because he knew God was gracious and compassionate. Slow to anger, abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, we hear that, and doesn't that sound like an incredible gift to serve and to be known by such a God? But Jonah is not reveling in God's merciful nature. No, he's like hurling it back at God as an accusation. He's accusing God of being who he is. I don't know if any of the rest of you have this tendency, but I, I fall for it every time. At a restaurant, the server comes out and puts a plate in front of me and says, be careful, this plate is really hot. And the first thing I do is touch the plate. Like, it's like I've got to prove to myself it's, it's hot, you know? And then I'm like, oh man, this is really hot. Now, then I could turn and accuse the server, this plate's really hot. And the server's like, that's what I just told you. I've never done that, but, but I have touched the plate and burned myself. Jonah ran from God because he hated Nineveh and he feared God's mercy. And he said, this is exactly what you were going to do, God. You were going to be compassionate and gracious. That's who you are. And I hate that when it involves other people. And here we're clearly confronted in bold relief with the difference between God and Jonah. Remember, last week we noted how all the other actors in this account, in this story, all the other characters, whether they're human characters or whether they're characters of nature, right? The fish, the wind, um, those kinds of things. They are all foils to Jonah because all of them obey and are in submission to the word of the Lord. Jonah alone resists and continues in rebellion. But now, Jonah has become a foil for God. Because Jonah's hatred of Assyria, his desperate desire for their utter destruction, is contrasted with God's gentle, profound mercy. And this draws our attention again to the fact, which is true of all Scripture, no human being is the main character of any biblical account. God is always the protagonist. He is always the primary actor he is always the initiator. He is always the one in control. And then Jonah tells God in verse 3 that he would rather die than be a part of God's mercy to pagans. I also think some of what's coming out is uh, Jonah's humiliation because he tried to manip manipulate God and failed, right? So he, he marches through Nineveh and he promises them, he prophesies, he foretells that in 40 days they're gonna be destroyed. And what he said does not come true. Despite all his efforts and suffering, he was unable to block God in any way, except, and this is an important place to note, where is the only place that Jonah was successful, if you wanna use that word, in blocking the work of God? was in his own heart. 
that should kind of chill us a little bit. God asks Jonah a simple, patient question, is it right for you to be angry? Hear God's gentleness in that question. Hear His love. And He's asking this of Jonah. He's trying to get Jonah to reflect on the state of his own heart. I remember during the two years that I served on this mission ship, the MV Dulos, there was an individual on board that I just could not stand. That guy irritated me and got under my skin just by his existence. And I remember one day, I don't recall exactly how this question was posed, if it was something that was in the context of a sermon or a teaching on board, or if it was something that the Holy Spirit just brought to my mind and asked, but it was a question, why? And ultimately, it came from the Lord, whether He sent it through somebody else or directly to my heart, to my mind, and it was, why does this person bother you so much? It's like that question that God asked Jonah, do you have a right? Is it right for you to be angry? He just wants Jonah to reflect. When that question came to me, for the first time, instead of just talking about everything I didn't like about the person, I stopped in my heart and I began to think and consider. And it actually became clear pretty quickly. I couldn't stand the person because they were a lot like me. And so I always felt a sense of competition with that person because my pride was being affronted by their pride. God is who God is. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever, as Hebrews 13, 8 says about Christ. He's immutable. That's just a fancy theological term, immutable, meaning in his character, God never changes. That means we come to him as all that he is, or we come to him not at all. When you uh, marry somebody, you can't say to them, you know what, I'm marrying your face, but I'm not marrying your body. I am so grateful for your laugh, Randy. I just want to say that out here. I miss it in the second service. If I could pay for you to come to both, I would, I would do that. Not a lot, but I would pay something. <laughs> we come to God as all He is, or we come to Him not at all. We don't have the freedom to pick and choose the aspects of God's character that we will accept and those that we will not. We also don't have the freedom or capability or capacity to make God in our own image. But this is what humanity has been attempting from creation. God made us in His image, but what we strive to do is to remake or refashion God in ours. So ultimately, we have two options, as Jonah is discovering. The first is to submit to God in all that he is, and specifically in his mercy, and thereby enter into his joy. Or 
rebel against God's mercy and go to destruction. Act two is the object lesson. In verse five, we're told that Jonah has taken a seat on the eastern side of the city. He has made some sort of shelter for himself and in its shade, he sits and waits to see what will happen. Now, we already know that God has relented, and we know that Jonah knows this. That's why he's angry with God about it. So, for what is Jonah waiting? He's hoping that Nineveh will backslide, revert to their evil and former ways, and that God will step in and still destroy them. Maybe, I don't know, maybe the 40 days weren't over yet. And so Jonah's thinking there's still hope. There's still hope because the 40 days aren't over. I know God relented, but still, 40 days. Maybe that's what he's waiting for. Perhaps it's hard for us to imagine ourselves in Jonah's place, right? Waiting for others to suffer, expecting it, longing for it, wanting it, doing everything we can, at least internally, to bring that about. It's hard for us to imagine ourselves in that place, or is it? Maybe it's not quite that hard to imagine it. Many years ago, um, at the church that we served in, in Brazil, there was a very, very close friend of mine. We served together, we were friends, we did a lot of things outside of church together, and um, his kids were in the youth group that I was leading, and, and kind of like from one day to the next, they they left uh, our church and started going to a different church. And I think that, that, that in and of itself was painful for me, but the hardest thing about it was that I, um, we never talked about it. Never. And you know, in retrospect, I could have initiated that conversation, but I didn't because I was bitter and I was hurt. And, and that was bad enough, but then... Um, his kids ran into some hard times and they, they you know, just had some difficulties in, in their lives and with some of their choices. And, and you know what? Oh, this gives me so much shame when I think of it, but the first, as, as this started coming out, one of the first reactions that I noticed in my heart was, well, see? That's what happens. It was so humbling for me when I saw that almost a desire for people that I loved and even cared about, but because I had been hurt, I wanted, in a sense, almost to celebrate that suffering. And that's so wrong. So I just share that story, obviously not because I'm proud of it, because, but because I want to encourage all of us to recognize when we find in our hearts similar attitudes to Jonah's. So it's easy to condemn him, right? It's easy to, to say, you fool, look at all this. Look at the fish, look at the storm, look at everything you've gone through. Haven't you gotten it yet? And, and, and to distance ourselves from him, but we actually don't need to distance ourselves. We need to realize how much correlation there might be, right, between him and, and us. But now, God approaches Jonah with a new strategy, right? God has spoken repeatedly, but now God enacts an object lesson. And he provides, that's an interesting term, God provides three things. A plant, 
a worm, and a scorching east wind. He provides a leafy plant that grows miraculously quickly. We don't know exactly how fast, but it was, it was remarkably fast. And it shades Jonah, and Jonah loves it, right? He welcomes it. And then, almost immediately after, God provides a worm that eats the plant, essentially kills it. And then, as if that's not, quote, bad enough, then God provides this horrific east wind that torments Jonah with its heat and its dryness, its aridity or aridness. And uh, friends, we need a broader view and understanding of God's mercy and of, and of His provision. So it's easy for us to imagine God's provision of the plant, isn't it? Yeah, why? Because that's a good thing, right? That's something that's bringing relief and comfort to Jonah. It's far more difficult for us to understand God's provision of the worm and the scorching east wind. But they are no less a part of God's mercy to Jonah because God's greatest desire for us is not our comfort. That's a hard truth for us. You've heard me say that before. I have to be reminded of this almost daily, and that's not an exaggeration that God's greatest desire for me is not for me to be comfortable. And ultimately, it's not even for me to be happy. God's greatest desire for me and for all of us is to know Him, to be known by Him, and to become like Him. And sometimes, to move us toward those goals, His mercy might not feel like mercy. His provision might not feel like provision in the moment because our thinking is always geared toward our comfort and our success. I've shared with you before that um, we had, Julie and I had accumulated a sizable debt, and um, by God's grace, truly by His grace, we are free of that now. But when in the midst of it, um, it, we, it wasn't just in the midst of it, we were going deeper, right? So it wasn't just a plateau, it was going deeper. And I, um, our, our bank in Brazil, just on the website, you know, in, in my account, there was this line of credit that they were offering. Um, and, and it was interesting to me, I, I hadn't realized it until that point, but I was kind of holding on to that line of credit as my hope, as the answer, right? And I, I hadn't really repented of the actions that had led us into this debt, right? And so I always knew, I knew that this line of credit would be a bad idea ultimately because it would just be more debt, but I thought in the short term, you know, it would make it feel better. So I was kind of hanging on to this as this is our hope, this is the backup plan, you know, this is the fail safe. If, if things go south really, really bad, then I'm gonna, you know, I'll, I'll take this line of credit that the bank's offering me. And things were getting really, really bad, and things were getting worse. And I remember logging into my bank account one day, and that offer was gone. Friends, let me tell you something. That was God's provision, and that was God's mercy. Let me tell you something else. It did not feel like God's provision, and it didn't feel like God's mercy. It felt like judgment and panic. 
But if God in, had, had withdrawn that mercy, if, if I had chosen to take that, our situation would have gotten much, much worse. And it was actually the disappearing of that line of credit that truly began to lead me to true repentance. That's God's mercy. That's His provision. And today I'm so grateful that He just did not release me and let me go my own way. And now for the second and third times in this chapter, Jonah insists that he wants to die. He insists on it. If we include um, his instruction to the sailors in chapter 1 to throw him overboard, this is the fourth time that he has affirmed his preference for death over seeing God be merciful to Nineveh. He's sulking and pouting, extending and exacerbating his own suffering because he will not accept what God offers him, which is the same mercy that God gave the Ninevites. Jonah wants a merciless God as it relates to them. He wants Nineveh destroyed, and he wants his precious plant back. And if he can't have these things, he wants death. And somehow, through his self-extended suffering, he thinks he can get back at God. There's nothing in the text that tells us that God told him to sit there, quite the opposite. You know, he's sitting there in the miserable heat of the desert by his own choice. He's extending his own suffering, and it's almost this idea that he thinks he can get back at God for this. Once again, such powerful irony because Jonah accuses God of mercy while at the same time receiving that same mercy. Because what becomes more and more apparent to the reader is that while Nineveh deserved destruction, so did Jonah. Both had rebelled against God. Both had resisted Him, run from Him, and gone their own way. But one side repented and accepted God's mercy, the other did not. The former was spared, the latter continues to suffer self-inflicted pain and misery and bitterness. Because what God is trying to get through to Jonah, in part, is that it's not just about being a Hebrew. It's not just about being one of God's chosen people. It's about the state of his heart and not primarily his ethnicity. And maybe today, as Christians, we need to be reminded of that same fact. It's not primarily about carrying the name Christian, and it's not primarily about being a, a member of a particular church. It's not primarily about going to church on Sunday morning, but please keep doing it. Because that's not going to get any of us to God. That's not, that's not what's going to be the magic, you know, a potion that's going to unify us with Christ. Ultimately, it's the state of our hearts, not the titles or labels that we carry. It's the question of, have we repented of sin? Have we surrendered to Jesus? Have we received the mercy of God and said yes to His grace, acknowledging that we can't save ourselves and that we'll never be perfect apart from His righteousness that makes us so?
Act 3, the final act of this chapter and the final act of the whole account is God speaks. Maybe I should call it God speaks again. Verse 10 is the beginning of the end. And the story ends as it began, right, with God speaking. How does it start? In chapter 1, verse 1, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. God started the action. He's about to end it. God is sovereign. We can rage and rebel and run, but God is still in control, and his character will not change. He's the alpha and omega. He's the beginning and the end. And with his final words, God illustrates with great clarity his own heart. All along, God has been inviting Jonah to exchange his hard heart for God's merciful heart. Because God's always about making his people more like him and less like the world. To turn our eyes and our attention from self-focus and self-pity outward to God and then to the desperate need of the lost in the world around us. And he challenges Jonah with a final question, basically saying, okay, Jonah, what's more precious? What carries more value? You or, 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 or this plant that gave you some comfort or 120,000 people? Jonah, you were concerned and angry about the death of a plant into which you had invested no time, no effort, and no resources. And God asks, should I then, Jonah, not be concerned for 120,000 souls confused and depraved who I created, who are mine, who I made for my glory? Shouldn't I be concerned about them? If you are concerned about a plant that you did not invest in, shouldn't I be concerned about 120,000 people that I made? Should I not be concerned for that great city? Shouldn't we? Do we have God's heart for people? and specifically for the lost? Or are we turned inward, you know, self-focused, self-gazing, obsessed only with our comfort and shade from the heat of life? Will we sacrifice to reach others for Jesus? Or will we see them just as inconveniences that get in the way of my self-fulfillment? We're not told what became of Jonah. What happened to him, we don't know. Is he in heaven? <laughs> the text doesn't tell us. But what we do know is where we leave him, an embittered, angry, demoralized man, totally alone in the desert, desperately waiting for destruction that is not going to happen. It's a sad and pathetic image. As 
I've said before, even today, God's greatest judgment upon any individual group or nation is for him to leave us alone. For God to allow us to follow self, unchecked, into the blazing, oppressive heat of eternity far from him. So, these two remain, God's sovereignty and God's mercy. And this is our choice, to rebel against him and never receive that mercy, or to surrender and submit to him in repentance to therefore, thereby rather receive his mercy and exchange our hearts for his. That's what God's about, is exchanging our heart for his. It's not just about fixing our hearts. It's about giving us a new one. Will we allow God to create his heart for him and for others in us? Will we allow God to do it? So I, I want you to hear me on this. I'm not suggesting that we do that. We are not the ones who can change our own hearts. We can't force God's heart into ours. There's no way we can do that. We're not equipped for it. it was never, we were never intended to be capable of doing that. But we can block God in our own hearts. So the question I'm asking, I want to be sure you understand how I'm asking this question. Will we allow God to create His heart for others in us? So that does mean when we recognize and realize the self-focus and the self-pity and the obsession with our own comfort that we lay that at the feet of Jesus. We call that repentance. It does mean that we ask God for his heart and that we're intentional about when, 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 we, when we see that, when we see his work, when we feel his work, and it, it starts to, there, there's that friction because it's butting up against self, right? And that, that we surrender self. So, will we repent of that self-obsession and self-pity, allowing God to turn our eyes upward and outward? And I don't know if you've experienced this, but it doesn't seem like it in the moment. But being self-absorbed is actually really exhausting. And we don't even realize it until those brief moments where God does turn our face outward. It's like that line in the hymn, just from sin and self to cease. I stand amazed in the presence, right? Just, just from sin and self to cease. There's such a relief in that if we allow God to do that in us. And at the same time, let's be in awe of the almighty God of the universe who cares, who's close, who interacts with people, who loves them, the rebellious and the repentant, the Christian and the pagan, the Jew and the Gentile. He offers his mercy to all, and that's worth celebrating. So in all this account of Jonah and his mistakes, I don't want us to lose sight of the joy of God who loves us, who has mercy on us, who's invited us to know him, to be adopted by him, and to be recipients of his mercy. Let's celebrate this God that we serve, all-powerful, 
yet overflowing in mercy. As we move into Advent next week, the first Sunday of Advent, our theme is going to be open the door. Jesus Christ came to us, right? He came to the world He created. He was incarnated. He took on human flesh. He was born as a human baby. That's what we celebrate at Advent at Christmas. And so we're going to be challenged and invited um, over those five Advent services, the four Sundays plus Christmas Eve, to open the door to specific aspects of who Jesus is. But we don't have to wait for next week. We can open the door of our hearts today to the mercy of the Almighty God and to His heart built, created, strengthened within us that we would be His hands and feet and that we would We would love those who are far from him, even those who have wronged us, even those who have hurt us, even those with whom maybe we have no remaining relationship. Maybe it's a a faceless group of people. Maybe it's a particular political party that you've just written off. Those people And maybe figuratively in your heart, you're sitting east of the city, desperately wanting God's judgment on that party or that politician or that race. And God's voice comes to you and he says, do you not think I should be concerned about those millions or even billions of people that I created, that I made? Come, join me. Allow my heart to be made in you for them. Uh, And and if you need something practical, because I know this is somewhat, it's not very concrete, it's a little abstract. But if you're looking for a concrete step, an action that you can take toward, into God's heart for those that have wronged you or hurt you. One we talked about last week, that's forgiveness. But the other one is this prayer. Pray for them. Jesus says it, pray for those who persecute you. And let's see what happens. Let's see what he does in them and in us. Uh, I would also encourage you to pray, not like Jonah did, um, you know, Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home, that you were going to be compassionate? But praying for their genuine blessing, praying that God would bring them to repentance, that God, that they would experience God's mercy. As we continue to worship, um, the altars are open. And um, as we've said more recently, right, all this space here is open as well. If you have a desire just to come and worship, you know, shoulder to shoulder with others closer to, to the stage, Um, you're welcome to come. If you want to come to the altar and have someone pray with you or for you, uh, come to this side. Someone will join you there. But let's worship this God, our God, who is so full of compassion and who has poured out his mercy on us and who wants to build his heart in us for all eternity.
Let's stand. Thank you for joining us for this week's message. One way you can connect further with First Friends Church is through our website, firstfriends.org. There, you can learn about our equip groups as well as our upcoming events for all ages. On Sundays, we gather at 9 and 10.30 a.m., and we'd love to see you there. Have a great week.